0: You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. This week, we're talking to Dissent Comrade and reporter Colin Kinneberg about the massive strikes that have been rocking France for several weeks now. You may have seen the fabulous photos of ballerinas on strike. We'll tell you all about it, but first, some news. We've talked a lot about plant closures on this podcast for obvious reasons. The effects of deindustrialization are vast and have reverberated throughout American politics. Trump won in key states in part because he promised to bring back jobs to places that had seen factories close. He, of course, made a big show of visiting the Carrier plant in Indiana to promise that it would stay open before he'd even been sworn into office. And the GM strike had as one of its major issues the closure of several plants, including the Lordstown plant in Ohio. We have heard on this show from its workers a few times since my reporting trip there. And so, I was of course interested in this new study from the University of Pennsylvania, which found that rates of opioid related deaths increase in US countries after an auto plant closure. For a long time, automotive jobs were a pathway to the middle class, said lead author Athindar Venkataramani, associate professor of health policy and medicine at Penn's Perlman School of Medicine. So a large auto plant closure effectively not only destroys the economy of a local area, but also has implications for how the fabric of society is able to maintain itself, he said. The story continues quote the researchers looked at 112 manufacturing counties in the industrial midwest and south defined by being among the top 20 percent nationwide for share of workers employed in manufacturing between 1999 and 2016 29 of those counties saw auto plants close the researchers tracked the overdose death rates during the five years after the plants closed and used the counties where plants stayed open to help predict what overdose rates would have been had the plant not closed they found that overdose mortality rates were 85% higher than researchers would have predicted had the plant stayed open. The demographic group with the greatest increase in deaths was white men aged 18 to 34, end quote. Notably, the trends in opioid overdose deaths before the plant closures look very similar to the counties where plants did not close. Where you see them diverge is timed exactly with when the closures happened, said Venka Taramani, who said they were confident that the spike in deaths was directly related to the, related to the closures. It's worth, of course, looking at stories like this because the opioid crisis map also overlapped with counties where Trump won, but also because in considering the future and what labor should be fighting for, both healthcare and jobs policy will be key in fighting the ongoing crisis in these communities, the despair that hits after a plant closure, and notably, of course, the researchers don't know if these deaths were of former workers, of people who were directly affected in other ways, or simply a heightened feeling of futility after the bigger, biggest employer in town up and leaves. So there's a lot more questions to be asked here, obviously, but it's just a yet another reminder of what it does to a community to have a plant come in and exploit people's labor, as Sean Crawford told us, for decades, and then decide to just shut down. Last year, you
1: might recall a groundbreaking bill that we reported on in California called AB5. It aimed to give many workers in the so-called gig economy full labor rights and ensure that they were properly categorized as employees rather than as independent contractors. It was a major win for labor because it tweaked the definition of independent contractor in order to ensure that anyone categorized as such would be truly independent and not dependent on a single company for wages and whose working conditions were not completely under the control of that company. This would tackle the loopholes in federal labor law that allow employers to flat their responsibilities to pay overtime and the minimum wage and adhere to other labor standards. But the effort to turn more gig workers into standard employees incurred massive backlash, predictably from the rideshare giants, Uber and Lyft, who fear that their whole business model will collapse. Their legal battle is currently ongoing. However, as the law goes into effect with the start of the year, AB5 is getting backlash from a very different industry and even from a very different set of workers. They're freelance writers. The law has a provision that mandates that the law's definition of employee versus independent contractor would apply to freelance writers or photographers that contribute above a threshold of 35 articles or pieces over the course of a year to one publication. That means that anyone submitting more than 35 published works a year to a single publication would be treated as an employee of that publication. A group of freelancers are now waging a legal challenge against AB5 because they say that this would lead to employers terminating their contracts with freelancers because the companies do not want to hire them as regular staff. So is AB5 going to kill freelancers' careers or will it help raise standards for freelancers and for even staff writers? Will it prevent the race to the bottom on wages? And will it help more journalists secure stable employment? I spoke with Tia Kuntz of the UCLA Labor Center about the ramifications of AB5 and what it could do to the industry.
2: The Bill AB5 that took effect on January 1st codified what the California Supreme Court ruled in a case called Dynamics. And what the court held there was that someone is considered an an employee um, as a status quo, right? So there is an assumption that somebody is an employee and not an independent contractor and the company or the person that they're doing work for has to show all three of the following things in order to demonstrate that the person is an independent contractor and get out of their liability to pay that person minimum wage and provide overtime and meal and rest breaks and whatnot. And those three things are that the person is working independently, not under the control of the company or the person they're working for that the person they are working for, or the company, does business that's different from the type of work being performed by the, work, by the worker at hand. Um, like you've hired somebody to come in and handle your internet or build you a pool. Um, and then the third thing is that the person doing the work has other clients. Right? This is their normal course of business, and they take other types of clients and have and do this as part of their regular contracting. Um, so if you can't show all three of those things, then the person doing work for you is an employee and you have the obligation to pay them minimal wage and overtime premium and provide meal and rest breaks and reimbursements for expenses, which means that there are a whole lot of employers uh, who now find themselves in a position of needing to reclassify their previously misclassified workers as employees and not independent contractors. So, I want to be really clear, you know, what 85 did is not reclassify workers. What it does is address and clarify workers that have been misclassified previously as independent contractors instead of as employees.
1: I suppose people were expressing concern prior to the law's passage, but it seems like after the passage of the law, people are increasingly concerned about the effect on freelancers, and that has culminated in this lawsuit. So if you could clarify yeah. like, what exactly people are um, alarmed about and sort of where this arbitrary number of 35 freelance pieces being some sort of threshold uh, came into place. Yeah, so
2: freelance journalists are concerned about being terminated, basically their contracts being terminated with news sources that can pick and choose from journalists all over the country, um, where those news sources um, won't even have to worry about whether or not somebody is an independent contractor or an employee. They can just keep contracting with people. Um, And so while California is the only state that has this ABC test, um, it places those journalists the fear is it places those journalists at a competitive disadvantage because those sources aren't going to, they're going to terminate their contract rather than open themselves up to liability for having to pay minimum wage and overtime and to unionization liability and, and to having to make payroll taxes like workers' compensation and unemployment. So we've seen already that this is starting to happen. And I'll say, You know, the industry has already been pretty decimated by um, the rise of digital media, right? And so especially print journalism, um, people are pretty freaked out about this. Um, I will say that there is a carve-out in AB5, and you've alluded to it already, for journalists, right? There's a carve-out that the ABC test doesn't apply, you're considered an independent contractor, everything is fine. Um, so long as you're writing 35 articles or fewer for that source in a given year. And that 35 number came out of a long negotiation process with the author and the same organization that's bringing the lawsuit. So, you know, what the author has said, and I don't know if you've gotten a chance to check out the Twitter fight about it because it's really instructive about what their compromise was. The author said, listen, we agreed at this 35 This is something that we agreed upon as being a reasonable number. And if you write more than that, then really you're a part time employee and you should be treated as such. Um, She has said that she's open to some wiggle room. She said that it's an industry that she is concerned about having negative impacts. Um, And so she is open to considering an increase in the number of articles that folks could write before they would be considered an employee. Um, But I would also say that the National Writers Union has come out in favor of AB5 and has said that this isn't really the right approach, and that what we're trying to do is provide protections for journalists who try to organize, right? That we've seen that what major news sources and major media sources have done is fire people wholesale, hire exclusively freelancers who can't unionize, um, and in that way, really drive down people's wages and benefits and expectation of a decent quality of life if you're a journalist.
1: That was Tia Kuntz of the UCLA Labor Center talking about AB5.
0: You've heard about video game workers organizing here on Belabored before, recently from Jamie Woodcock, and mostly in Britain. But now the Communications Workers of America is investing in a new campaign to organize digital employees, or CODE for short. The campaign comes out of conversations between CWA and Game Workers Unite, the games workers group that has been organizing across the world for a couple of years now and aims to get games and tech workplaces unionized. CWA has hired a couple of staffers to be on this particular beat full time, including Emma Kinema, one of the co-founders of Game Workers Unite and the organizer behind a couple of its California branches. Video game workers in particular have been outspoken recently about the problems in their industry. I have spoken to several who described crunch time, excessive unpaid overtime, that tends to happen as games get closer to publication, and talked about the industry's ongoing gender and race issues. It is overwhelmingly dominated by young, white, straight men. They are also rolling layoffs after a big game drops. One worker said to me, They tell you you're a family, but your family doesn't lay people off every year. The tech industry, of course, also has a sexual harassment problem and workers, we've noticed, have begun begun to act politically on the job around ice, around surveillance, around the tools of war and, of course, climate change recently at Google. So it's great to see a big union that has been successfully organizing other parts of new media, notably, of course, our own journalism industry, putting some weight into unionizing tech workers and giving them a voice on the job on a regular basis.
1: One of the world's major fruit companies, FIFES, is in hot water over a labor dispute in Honduras. The company has been accused of union-busting and subjecting workers to dangerous pesticide exposures and harsh conditions on the melon plantations of the Choluteco region. Under a subsidiary of the conglomerate Seoul FIFES, called Melon Central, many workers have aligned with STAS, a militant union that is known for organizing temporary, seasonal, and subcontracted workers. The company has been pressuring workers to join its preferred union, the company-friendly Citrum Alexa. Moreover, workers say that they are suffering from excessive exposure to pesticides in the fields, which is making many people ill, and they are being pressed to work excessively under strenuous conditions. Meanwhile, they say that they are also getting shorted on wages and denied access to Social Security. I spoke with Gabby Rosaza of the International Labor Rights Forum about what's going on in Honduras and how it relates to us as consumers and as workers.
3: FIFES is the fourth largest banana producer in the world. They're the lesser known um, banana company after Dolce, Chiquita, and Del Monte, which are the well-known fruit companies of the world. Um, They produce um, bananas, melons, pineapples, um, mushrooms, and plantains um, that are exported to Europe and the United States. Um, under different labels. So there is a labor conflict that involves a union in Honduras, um, and it is at one of Fife's melon subsidiaries in the south of the country. Workers have been undergoing different kinds of labor rights violations for over two decades, including non-payment of minimum wages, exposure to toxic pesticides, different types of gender-based violence. And in 2015, uh, workers decided to organize a union to address their longstanding concerns one of them, additionally, including that uh, the melon season is about five or six months between the months of November and May. And there are uh, a majority of the workers there. There's about um, six to eight thousand workers that FIFEs employs in the southern part of Honduras. And uh, a majority of the workers are are women and as well as um Many people have been working on these plantations for 10, 15, even 20 years. Um, but because it's seasonal work, they're um, hired under new contracts every year. And so that um, adds an additional threat that basically uh, that the management is able to put upon the workers. Um, if they have had ever spoken out about any violations, then easily the company just doesn't rehire them for the next season. Um, So these issues have been going on for for many decades. Um, And in 2015, the workers decided to organize a union. And um, beginning in 2016, uh, the the company, both local management as well as the corporation, which uh, has executives in Ireland and is now owned by a, massive Japanese conglomerate um, called Sumitomo. So the company as a whole has uh, run a very complex anti-union campaign to whitewash all of the abuses that are going on, as well as completely destabilize the, the efforts of the workers to um, form their union and, and better their working conditions. I know that there had
1: been a call for Congress to put pressure on FIFEs, and um, there had been an effort to decertify them as an ethical company from a certification system. Have those had any impact? And uh, if those efforts have uh, so far not borne fruit, uh, no pun intended, then what would the next steps be?
3: The steps that have been taken to put pressure on FIFEs um, to bargain with the union have been that the company has been cited in complaints under the International Labor Organization. The company is also cited in the CAFTA complaint. The, there's a free trade agreement complaint um, between the U.S. government and the government of Honduras. Over the summer, Costco announced to ILRF that they would not be sourcing from Fife's in Hon- the melons in Honduras. And FIFES has been expelled from the Ethical Trading Initiative, which is a multi-stakeholder ethical consortium in the UK, as well as last year, they were also decertified by Fair Trade USA. So all of those points of pressure on FIFES had two different effects. FIFES, in different occasions, their corporate executives have decided to come to the table to dialogue with the union. But many of the agreements that have been signed by the company and the union, as well as verbal agreements during those meetings have not actually meant any concrete improvements for workers. And it's also been part of their um, public relations campaign to um, say that they're trying to find a specific dialogue with the union. The other thing that FIFES has done as a result of the campaign pressure is um, the biggest anti-union tactic that they've used is that, that local management has um, started their own company-controlled unions, um, and now they're massively affiliating all of the workers on the melon plantations um, to these company-controlled unions so that they can say that they respect, freedom of association.
1: So I guess as consumers, I mean, what should we draw from this? Is it that these like ethical certification <laughs> systems are kind of useless?
3: It's extremely difficult to ask a consumer in their day-to-day life to make every single consumer choice an ethical one. And I think the, the bigger problem as well is that you have these independent bodies that really are industry and corporate-led that just provide a PR service um, for the global brand. I think the broader importance of this one fight um, in Honduras and, and how it points to um, forced migration coming from, from Central America, when I hear the dialogue in the United States talk about um, migration... What you hear is is that poverty is one of the reasons that people are coming, but that's not really analyzed in a way to put at the center that you have this foreign investment in Central America that is perpetuating horrible working conditions and um, and I think the Fife's case and the Fife's fight is is one small example of how workers are risking their lives and their livelihoods to just have basic standards on melon plantations um, that are exporting products and food to the U.S. market. And, um, and the company has spent tens and thousands of dollars on lawyers, um, both in the U.S., in Europe and in Honduras, to, to do whatever they can to stop stop the, the union from getting a, a collective bargaining agreement.
1: That was Gabby Rosaza of International Labor Rights Forum. Things are getting hectic on the streets of Paris. France has a long, proud tradition of labor militancy, but this latest wave of strikes, triggered by the threat of an overhaul of the much-cherished pension system, has been big even by French standards. Now in their sixth week, the strikes have brought private and public sector workers into the streets to express rage at the Macron administration's neoliberal policies. The breadth of the protests have revealed some of the tensions roiling French society and a growing sense of alienation among many segments of the working class. On Thursday, we spoke to Colin Kinneberg, Paris-based freelance journalist and dissents editor-at-large, who's been following the protests and the politics surrounding labor clashes.
0: So there has been a lot going on in France for the last couple of months, but not all of it filters over to the U.S. media. So for our listeners who haven't been paying attention, tell us briefly who's on strike and why and how long it's been.
4: There definitely has been a lot going on. Um, It's been a historic strike, an epic strike um, in pretty much every respect. This has, first of all, been the longest strike by rail workers who are the ones leading the strike Since at least 1968, they've been on strike. This is the 36th day, so we're going into six weeks of strikes. And of course, it's been much wider than just the rail workers. Um, This is a huge, mostly public sector, but also private sector strike. And in terms of the scale of it, I mean, we've had some of the biggest marches here in um, 10 years, roughly. The last time the government uh, pushed through major pension reforms was in 2010. And we also saw about a million people in the streets back then. This year, there were about 800,000 people out on the first day. And uh, we just had, another, we had a, another huge day on December 17th. And today, um, we don't have the official numbers, but it seems like, it, it, just from being at the march in Paris, it seemed at least as big. So yeah, it's been a pretty epic strike on um, many levels. And in terms of who's striking, I mean, just coming back from the march today, it's really across the board. I think the strike has been portrayed mostly as a transit strike um, led by the rail workers and the Paris metro workers, which is true. They've been the most militant and they've been heading up the strike. But teachers have also been striking in in really high numbers. Um, unions were saying today that 40% of teachers were out, which is pretty consistent with what we saw on some of the earlier days of mobilization. Um, there's you know, pretty much the full spectrum of public sector workers from nurses and doctors and other healthcare workers to Air France pilots to people working in public administration and finances, to social workers, to library workers, to, of course, the ballerinas, who I'm sure everyone's seen on Twitter by now. So yeah, it's really a a uh, far-reaching, broad-based strike, but so far with no end in sight.
1: Can you discuss a little bit more in detail, not just the industries that are turning out, but also um, just sort of who is demographically represented among the strikers? Is it primarily um, perhaps older workers, people getting close Mm -hmm. to pension age, or is it young people as well?
4: I wouldn't actually say it skews older. Uh, I've I've seen just, I mean, anecdotally, I, I don't think there have been any studies of this yet, or at least that, that I've seen. But no, anecdotally, it, it seems pretty broad-based. Um, a lot of young people, a lot of the younger workers in, in all the various sectors I mentioned see their futures at stake. Some of the people I've I've interviewed, for example, I was talking to a, a refinery worker today who was, I believe, in his 30s or 40s. We've seen um, students mobilize as well. There's been occupations and blockades in, in high schools which are sort of indirectly linked to this movement scene. College students also come out. And then, of course, yes, definitely, you know, people who are closer to retirement age or people who are retired already. The point that people are trying to make is that even though the government is trying to portray this as really only affecting a handful of workers negatively, especially the rail workers, for example... The point that the strikers are trying to make is that it's going to affect everyone and that everyone's pensions, or at least the pensions for the vast majority of people, I think at least 60% of people are are likely to go down under the planned reforms, while the, age, uh, the retirement age is going to effectively go up. So that's got a lot of people really upset and mobilized, um, people who are worried about their future across the board and um, not just people who are approaching retirement age.
1: The way the government has been explaining it or the uh, Macron administration is that they are trying to uh, sort of consolidate a number of different sort of disorganized pension programs and Mm -hmm. sort of streamline them into a universal points-based supposedly system. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet uh, there seems to be this um sort of impasse when it comes to the retirement age. I mean, is the mm-hmm. is there a broader pension reform discussion to be had or is it all just sort of a vehicle for Macron trying to jam in a, you know, an, an increase in the retirement age is that the only issue?
4: There definitely is a discussion to be had about reforming France's pension system. There are inequalities baked into it. For example, women typically retire with a significantly lower pension, as much as 40% lower than men. So there are definitely problems with it. But the reform that Macron is trying to push through really doesn't address any of those problems. It's The premise of it is really budgetary. Their opening sort of salvo for this reform was a report projecting that the deficit from the social security system was going to go up to anywhere from 5 billion to I think 17 billion euros over the next 5 years and so there's sort of a cost-cutting mentality that that is inspiring this now we could go into the details of of the financing a little bit more later but the point is they are trying to push through a reform that is going to save the save the system money, which they say is necessary to stabilize it, and that's what um, the unions are calling into question, and and a, and a broad swath of the population.
1: And yep. that seems to echo a lot of the uh, debates we have over um, public sector pensions here in the US, right? Can you talk a little bit more about the connection that you have seen between the debate going on in France um, and this effort to move away from defined benefit pensions in the United States and this sort of 401kization of our entire retirement system?
4: I'm not an expert on pensions and certainly the U.S. system, but what I do know is that the French system is pretty unique. It's one of very few that is entirely public, pretty much. I mean, of course, there are a few people, typically better off people who, you know, save separately for their retirement. But in terms of the the official pension system, it's entirely publicly funded. And the way it works is that, you know, similar to Social Security in the United States, people... Uh, working, paying into the system now, are sort of directly paying for the pensions of uh, current retirees. So there's a sort of principle of intergenerational solidarity anchoring the whole system. That system is very dear in France, and Macron has and his government have insisted that they're not trying to take that away. But what people are saying is that if you look at countries that have already made a shift towards a points-based system like Sweden did um, starting in the early 1990s, the public portion of the pensions did drop off significantly, and people have been forced to compensate that with more sort of investment, uh, closer to a 401k system like we see in the States or IRAs or any other type of investment accounts. And... Uh, the government has has generally said that's not what the reform is uh, intended to do but they've also with an earlier economic bill that they pushed through over the summer made it easier basically to open 401k style retirement accounts and that was a reform you know that's been celebrated by the likes of uh, Blackrock the American investment firm so clearly we are shifting in that kind of direction or at least that It looks like that's what the government wants to do. And so that's got a lot of people very concerned.
0: So we'll get back to BlackRock. But first, I wanted to ask how these strikes compare to fairly recent strikes against Macron's labor law reforms, things like that.
4: It's been a rocky term so far for Macron, as I think anyone who's listening to this podcast will know. Obviously, we had um, the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vests, last year. Um, those were pretty big protests, but we were talking about 250,000 something people on on the biggest day. Um, then a couple years back, when Macron was uh, economy minister under François Hollande, um, there were these big labor law reforms that prompted sort of the big, the last big round of um, of strikes and protests, as you were talking about, Sarah. I don't know the exact scale of those, but they were they were quite a bit smaller um, than this. Even though they they also lasted quite a while, and, and uh, unfortunately were defeated, um, and those reforms were pushed through. So again, the last time we saw a movement on this scale was um, was back in 2010 when um, Nicolas Sarkozy, the right wing president at the time, and his administration made an earlier round of pension reforms, which are the ones that increased the age from 60 as it was as it had been since the the 1980s to 62 which it is now and now again as we sort of touched on um michael and his government are trying to push it up effectively to 64.
1: Can you talk about the specific role of the transit sector in these strikes and how uh how those have affected everyday life in um
2: -hmm. not just in
1: cities like paris but i suppose all over the country um how have people sort of been dealing with that on a day-to-day basis? You know, has the city been paralyzed in some parts, or are people just sort of getting along with it? And how has that affected how people perceive the strike uh, in terms of the, the public reaction?
4: Well, you know, I have a, a Paris bias because I live here, but um, it's certainly been extremely tangible here, especially towards the beginning of the strike, when the overwhelming majority of of conductors um, in both the, the SNCF, the National Railways, and the... Um, the Paris Metro were were on strike. Um, pretty much all of the lines were shut down, um, both just within Paris and in the wider region. So uh, for me personally, for example, that means I'm I'm doing a, you know a 45 minute bike ride <laughs> to work every day instead of uh, my usual train ride, and um, you know traffic has just been insane, and people are mad and yelling at each other. Um, it sort of calmed down a little bit over the holidays, because people, uh, more people went back to work. And uh, I mean, w- among among rail workers, there was sort of a, even though there was no official reprieve in the strike, um, you know, people were struggling after after weeks without pay. So there there were a few people who went back to work. And so there was sort of a dip, a dip in the strike and a, a quasi return to normalcy. But that seems to be over now and um, again, practically none of the none of the lines in the Paris Metro were working. and you know Paris is a is an incredibly transit dependent city uh, as much as, as New York, for example. so it, it's, it's definitely caused some chaos and um, I mean just financially the uh, well the national railways are counting losses of about 700 million euros from the last month um, and uh, in Paris about you know 100 million or likely quite a bit more because um, they're going to have to refund a bunch of people's transit passes. So it's definitely been, um, if not crippling throughout the whole month, um, certainly crippling at the beginning, and uh, it's definitely made it made it challenging. So the strike is absolutely at the center of attention. There's a lot of pressure on, I would say, especially on the government, if you look at the polling, um, to, to make some concessions. Um, but it's not really at all clear. I mean, we still seem to be in the stale- same stalemate we were essentially when the strike started. Um, so it's really not at all clear yet how this is going to play out even uh, six weeks in.
1: Do you feel that the public is generally siding with workers, though, or if, uh, if there is there mounting public frustration or backlash against uh, at the commuting situation?
4: According to the sort of most widely cited poll, there was a pretty consistent majority in support of the strike pretty much until, I think, a few days ago. Then we saw a slight dip, and now we're closer to around 45% either support or sympathize with the strike, which is still larger than people who, you know, condemn it. But the duration of the strike is is definitely taking a toll on on public opinion, even though, you know, you still have a strong majority of people who are opposed, for example, to raising the retirement age and don't really trust the government's pension reform plans in general, even if they feel like some level of reform is necessary. So it's, you know, it's it's a tense moment. It's a tense moment. Um, but We'll have to see what the what the final numbers are like in terms of turnout for today. That's been obviously a major indicator of you know whether the movement can can keep up the energy, can keep up the momentum and keep up the pressure going into yet another round of negotiations between unions and the government starting tomorrow.
0: yeah, so my question you sort of anticipated there, which is like how is this affecting politics? macron's popularity hasn't been good for a while, but What's this doing to that? Is the left able to benefit from any of this? What is the role of the, you know, Marine Le Pen and the, the nationalist right?
4: Just in terms of the way the demonstrations have played out so far, it seems like a sort of moral boost for the left, just because we haven't seen a mobilization on this scale in the country uh, in quite a while. Uh, Macron's party, you know, won the won the presidency in in 2017, and um, sort of. Crushed at first, the 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 socialist party, so sort of the broad center left social democratic party and the traditional right wing party, um, now called Les Républicains, took a hit as well, uh, and that was that was solidified in the European elections. But basically, we've seen the consolidation of a bloc of around you know maybe a quarter of the electorate or slightly less, um, sort of solidifying around Macron. So, and that continues to be a plurality if far from a majority and that's basically all he needs to stay in power to potentially win again in in 2022 so he's really counting on that and i think those are the people who are most opposed to the strike and if he uh loses them you know he could he could lose a big chunk of his electorate potentially back to the you know the the traditional right or just just generally lose lose voters there so he's to me, it looks like electorally, it's a, it's really important to him to push this through and to portray himself as the president who could, you know, reform France's pensions when no one else could.
1: So in addition to the main public and private sector unions, are there people who are not directly affected by the pension issue? Um, I assume there are some workers who may not be eligible for the pension system. Are they turning out? And I guess what's their stake in Joining this fight, if they are indeed, or um, how you know how does it work for maybe you know workers who are in precariously employed or maybe just not in a formal uh, formal employment structure.
4: To tell you the truth, uh, I mean, of course, there there are people who are outside of outside of formal employment who are you know working without uh, papers and under the table um, and who are outside of the the pension system. As far as anyone who. You know, is working formally. They they are uh, affected. They are under the the sort of main public pension system in one of its various forms, um, and so we've we've we have seen um, young people, um, you know, students, people who are precariously employed, who are coming out and who have formed. Um, for example, there's a. There's a collective that's formed, um, led by young people, called um, No Retraites, Our Pensions, and they've sort of been doing a big campaign of, of awareness-raising about the potential effects of these pension reforms. One other thing that's important to note here, um, and you know, we saw a good example of this today at the at the demonstration. Um, there's this there's this sort of influential uh, left wing and uh, sort of counter globalization group called ATEC, which had um, sort of was was spearheading a feminist block at the at the march today, making the point that basically um, that women specifically and in general people who have you know, careers that are sort of more broken up, who do more part-time work, um, or who sort of maybe have to switch between jobs more, that those people are actually going to be hit hardest by the reforms, despite what Macron says, because unlike France's current pension system, which for most workers is based on the 25 best years of your career, the, the new system would just be based on your entire career. So if there are portions where you're not working, for example, if you have to take time off because um, you have children or, or any other for any other reason, um, that time is just not going to go towards your retirement. Whereas before, as long as you had worked for uh, 25 years over your career, that's what would be taken into account.
0: So, yeah, you mentioned some of these things um, that haven't really made it that much of the English language coverage.
4: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: you mentioned before when we were emailing about this, um, the role of energy workers outside mm-hmm. of parents, And also um, I've read mm-hmm. some about Amazon warehouse workers.
4: Mm-hmm. So could you
0: talk a little bit about some of that?
4: Yeah. So as I said, um, it has been a broad based movement, but so far the momentum has has really been driven by the public sector. So energy is one of the the few areas that that the strike has really trickled into um, and that's been getting a lot of attention here because from the very first day of the strike, you had the majority of oil refineries uh, on strike, essentially. So starting on the very first day of the movement, you had seven out of the eight refineries in mainland France um, where the workers were on strike, and um, which meant that or at least, according to the unions, um, no, no oil was coming in and out. So obviously, that got people pretty nervous. Um, and the strikes have been continuing on and off at some of the refineries. I went to one yesterday, um, about 30 miles outside of Paris, where about a quarter of the total workforce, and that you know that includes um, the white collar workers. So uh, the majority of the people who are actually doing the physical work in the refinery um, have been on strike consistently for, well, six weeks now. Um, And for the last three days, they agreed to essentially shut off all oil distribution from the refineries. And and that's all eight in France. Um, So that includes what's coming through the pipelines as well as what was being shipped by road. Um, So we're not looking at any likely major shortages because, you know, France has these sort of strategic reserves of oil and anyway, there are backups, but it's more to send a signal to the government. Um, so that's been, that's been one area. Of course, we, we, we've all seen the the workers from the Paris opera and ballet, um, who staged those amazing performances in late December, um, on the opera steps, um, and one one thing that is has been striking about their response is that you know after they went after they went viral after those those performances, the government sort of quickly looked to give them some concessions to say, well you know you can keep your your retirement at forty two, which is what it currently is for for the ballet. Um, you can imagine why, given the the extremely physical kind of work it is, but. Uh, they wanted to put in a grandfather clause saying that, you know, for future generations, we're going to increase it, and um, the workers at the ballet turned that down. Um, so they've they've actually been uh, some some of the most militant, um, and as well as you know, leading some of the most spectacular protests uh, against the strike.
0: And so, in terms of the oil refinery stuff, obviously, the Gilets Jaunes, one of their big demands was around mm-hmm. energy gas tax and and that mm-hmm. stuff. So how mm-hmm. does that how do the strikes at the oil refineries? I know this is your favorite topic, Colin. Um, connect to questions around climate change, uh, climate policy, mm-hmm. push for a green new deal stuff like that.
4: I wish there were a more straightforward connection. When I spoke to the workers yesterday, I mean, they what they very clearly said to me was our number one demand our you know, the demand we we want to send right now is withdrawal of the pension plans and that is, that's it pretty much. Um, so we, I wasn't really able to get into sort of those bigger questions. If you look at another energy sector, um, that is on strike, I mean, you've got workers in the sort of semi-public, um, electricity sector. Um, so electricity and gas, and they've also been conducting some pretty militant actions. So, um electricians specifically in some regions uh in the first couple weeks of the strike cut off power um a couple times temporarily some of that was very targeted for example right before christmas um there were cuts to an amazon warehouse overnight some of that was less targeted and hit i think about 50,000 homes uh and businesses of course in one region and there was a lot of controversy because, you know, the government was saying a hospital was affected and there was a lot of back and forth about whether that was true. But anyway, so there have been um, some pretty militant tactics on that front. And one of the sort of fundamental demands you'll see from electricity workers, um, <laughs> because they wear it everywhere on their union jackets everywhere they go, is to bring back a 100% public energy system um, as it's been, you know, gradually sort of dismantled and, and privatized over the years. Um, so I think that has sort of more obvious direct ties to a sort of green New Deal vision. Um, and clearly they're a fairly militant uh, and committed group of workers who have been have been part of this movement and and many others. We also saw energy workers in one region restoring power to people um so there's been these sort of uh smart devices put it put into these smart meters put into people's homes uh just recently over the last year or two and they come with the ability to um limit your power to 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 cut your power if you haven't been paying on time and um so a lot of people were affected by that and in one region um, as part of the the current strike movement, the, the workers turned off those smart meters so that uh, the residents could get full power again. Um, so again, I think very much in keeping with a sort of Green New Deal vision of, of a right to energy um, and uh, a sort of militant labor movement helping to make that happen. To take a, a very big step back, I mean, I think there is a sort of broader climate and Green New Deal connection to be made here just more simply in terms of working time and whether we're pushing towards a society that forces people to, you know, work further and further into old age, um, as we've obviously seen in the United States, and we're seeing somewhat here as well. Or do we give people, uh, you know, the chance to to retire in dignity um, with a comfortable pension? France currently has one of the lowest rates of old age poverty Certainly among rich countries, it's around, I believe, around three and a half percent compared to roughly 23 percent in the United States. So we already have the building blocks, despite the inequalities that do exist in the system here, of a sort of, you know, a vision of a, of a dignified life after work. Um, and I think that's something that people are very committed to. And it helps explain why you've seen um, such a, a militant movement around this. And also connects to, to the vision of, of a Green New Deal, of not moving to a society that simply produces more uh, for the sake of, you know, growth and uh, balancing the budgets, um, but to a society that is, you know, green and sustainable and allows everyone to live in dignity.
3: So
0: do you want to get to BlackRock? Uh, (laughs) so yeah you had mentioned blackrock earlier what is their role here are there other companies that are also sniffing around potential privatized pensions Mm -hmm. Um, and what are people doing about it
4: blackrock is definitely not alone in um pushing for a more uh investment-based you know uh pension system like you have in the u.s but they've gotten a disproportionate share of the attention, or maybe or a very proportionate share, but certainly a lot of attention, in part because um, Macron has personally met since the very beginning of his presidency with um, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, um, several times. I th- I think they have personally met at least twice, and there have been various meetings at the, the Élysée Palace with other government ministers that... Um, the, both Larry Fink and the the French CEO of BlackRock have been part of, um, and um, Jean-François Thyreti, the French CEO, is also on a sort of council of advisors that is, you know, giving Macron advice about essentially privatization plans, is how I've seen it characterized, but more generally on on economic policy the cherry on top basically is that um, just a few days ago uh, on New Year's Eve this very same uh, French CEO of Blackrock Ci received the Legion of Honor um, which is just kind of jaw-dropping uh, coming especially in the middle of this movement during which they'd already received a lot of bad press but I guess maybe it had been in the works already and you know they couldn't they couldn't just withdraw it so point is if nothing else it looks like an incredible level of, of collusion um, between the the government and, and BlackRock over these pension plans and um, and that's certainly in keeping with what other big insurance companies and um, and banks and the financial sector here in France have been have been pushing for as well it's not just BlackRock if you look at I mean the uh, another big controversy that has sort of played into this, uh, into this whole movement that you know now, it's already a few weeks ago. It's it's almost been forgotten about. But um, Macron's first pensions chief, who is essentially the architect of of the reforms as they've currently been proposed, had to resign in the in the middle of the strike movement because it was revealed that he had all these various sort of advisory positions in various think tanks and the like, including one specifically that was linked to the private insurance industry. That he had never disclosed, um, and so that it became sort of galling enough that he had to resign um, about three weeks into the movement, and uh, only to be replaced by uh, the former human resources head at a uh, major supermarket chain here, Auchan, who is uh, also a, uh, a member of parliament with Michael's party. So yeah, you can you can see you can see why people are suspicious.
0: A little bit, a little bit. And so what are some of the concessions that um the government could make to end the strike if mm-hmm. they are so inclined? Um what what is a sort of end
3: game here?
4: I think the most likely concession we could see is around this um I mean it's been called the pivot age but what would effectively be the sort of new age to get a full pension um which would be 64. So that was what the the sort of more conciliatory uh, so-called reformist unions like the CFDT, which is currently the largest union in France, um, that was what they called a red line and what pushed them to join the strikes when that measure was officially announced in early December. And so I think the most likely dynamic we're going to see is the government essentially trying to win over that union and a couple of the other more Reformist centrist unions, who they tend to be seen as sort of giving the the government a necessary stamp of approval on the reforms that it pushes through, and um, you know they've they've played that role for for several of the other economic reforms that um, have come through the pipeline in the last few years. So, what I think could potentially happen is that they walk back the the increase in the retirement age. That would allow, you know, that would that would probably cause those unions to withdraw from the movement, and that might be enough to end the strike, even though they weren't in the strike from the very beginning. I, it, it could break the momentum, I think, of the movement. So that's that's one possible scenario. Of course, the the more militant unions, the the Cgt and um, force ouvrière and the other historically, left-wing unions have said, um, uh, they're going to stay in the streets until the reform plan is withdrawn. You know, it has happened in the not so distant past. It happened in 1995 when we also saw a huge movement, even larger than this one, but not as long. But, uh, again, with, with the political game that Michael is trying to play, I think, and, um, you know, playing, playing to his, his base, small as it may be, um, it's very hard for me to see him completely dropping the reform. So I think think probably that the age is going to become the central question of the next week or two.
1: So uh, there seems to have been a general sense of social malaise kind of hovering over France, at least uh, Mm -hmm. that's what it looks like um, from across the pond um, in Mm -hmm. terms of um, since the Gilead Jean movement um, kind of broke out, um, there there seemed to mm. be a sense that France had kind of hit a, a point of some kind of social stagnation, or had reached sort of this um, like zenith of of, of social unrest. Um, do you see the same atmosphere pervading this this wave of strikes? Um, and uh, do you see an overlap between the two movements? Um, you know, obviously this is the um, this uh, this. Latest batch of strikes has been—they've um, been the largest in recent memory—and I was wondering if you felt that that was that had been uh, sort of colored by some of the previous uprisings that we've seen over the past year or two.
4: Yeah, I think I think all of the unrests against Macron's government, you know, since he uh, became president, has certainly fed into this wider sense of of discontent that is fueling the strikes. Absolutely. At the same time, there's sort of a a return here to a sort of more typical template of French Union marches and big strike demonstrations, which look pretty different than the ones we saw last year with the Gilets de Jeunes, which obviously, well, first of all, were were marked by uh, a pretty sort of new original tactic, which was, you know, the occupation of these roundabouts um, in, you know, uh, suburban and, and rural areas far outside of Paris, followed by a very Intense, violent few weeks of protests, and then just recurring—you um, know—intense protests with lots of uh, property destruction um, with within Paris. And so there was sort of there was this sort of appearance of 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 a major social crisis, which I think is, was certainly partly real, but also fueled just by the the violence of a few of those of some of those protests, even though. They weren't that massive on on the grand scheme, in the grand scheme of things, um, certainly much smaller than, than the protests we're seeing today. You know, we have we have seen some amount of that in the current protests. Of course, there are sort of still black bloc protesters at the head of the march who tend to clash with police, you know, around when it gets dark. It's sort of become a, a, a routine from the last few marches I've been to. But, you know, it's it's much more in the standard mold of of big French French union marches and that might also be something that Macron is less afraid of than the yellow vests which I think it just caught people completely off guard because the 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 mobilization just took forms some that we had never seen and some that you hadn't seen just in terms of of the level of of violence and property destruction in in decades in France and I think that is what forced a lot of concessions from the government I mean even if they were relatively superficial you know you did you did see Macron pretty quickly walked back the the fuel tax increase that that sparked that movement. So even if he didn't respond to the the much larger demands that emerged over time, um, you know, we we did see some some pretty immediate concessions and and those weren't the only ones. Whereas the line against the current strike movement has just been unwavering. Um even even six weeks in, um, you know, we've seen we've seen, I mean, there have been little Hints coming from Macron himself, you know, reported by someone else in 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 his office that oh he might be willing to concede on on this on the on the retirement age, the pivot age, or this or that. Um, but those have all been sort of rumors. What we've heard publicly has been completely unwavering so far, um, which has been pretty different from the response uh, to the Jaunes.
1: In light of that, and this will be the last question, um, you you had noted that um, it seems increasingly, um, the, the administration seems increasingly willing to sort of wait out these protests perhaps, comes down mm-hmm. to sort of a battle of wills going into the future of the labor movement in France. Do you feel that um, there's, a, there's a sense of a need for maybe changing tactics or or changing um, some of how they do these types of mobilizations um, in order to respond to, I guess, this increasing intransigence on the part of the government and perhaps to bring in new elements or to um, devise, you know, sort of uh, different strategies of um, trying to bring pressure to bear um, on on sort of these, these Long-standing institutions and a political class that doesn't really seem to uh, give a crap.
4: This ties back into your previous question and about the overlap between the movements, which I I didn't really get into. Um, we have seen some overlap between um, the yellow vests and the 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 strikes, the union movement, but it's it's been pretty minimal, honestly. And this goes back to one of the sort of main points of contention over the last year within. The broad left, um, which is that, you know, the unions were very slow to come out in support of the Yellow Vest movement. For the most part, I mean, um, the CGT, which is the second largest union and the one that is essentially leading leading the current strikes, um, I think Philippe Martinez, the the leader of of the CGT, did eventually sort of come out and you know, say that he supported the the broad demands for economic justice. But there were very few attempts concretely to bring workers out uh, in support of that movement. You know, I mean, it's, it's understandable. You had a lot of hostility from the beginning with among the yellow vests to unions, basically just to all forms of political organization. Um, and of course, you had some pretty extreme right- wing elements who are who are filtering into the into the movement you know we can debate how significant a part of the of the yellow vest they were but they were definitely in there and so that was obviously a, a key reason why left-wing unions like the cGT wanted to keep their distance from the beginning what we did see much more was convergence for example between um, the yellow vests and climate protesters um but even that you know it's, what I've heard from from organizers who are kind of more on the on the climate side of things is that it's been very slow slow going coalition work, and so I mean we've seen these challenges, all these major challenges against Macron's government, coming from different camps which have tried to come together and to some extent have. But the the sort of uh, the French term which you'll hear thrown around all the time here is convergence des luttes, you know, the convergence of, of the struggles or the, or the fights, the social battles, sort of remains this this elusive uh, grand goal for the left here. and and I, I just don't really think we've seen that as much as as you've seen hints of it and people trying to to put that together over the years um, over the, over the last year or two, especially um, under Macron. I think we're still some ways from that and um, these different groups are still more or less protesting separately. So I don't know what it would take to really bring them together into a sort of united front, I guess, against Michael. Um, But uh, it it sort of looked like maybe maybe the pensions would be it, but um, it's not clear that they have been. So we'll have to see how things play out. Um, I don't, I don't have any, any grand strategy tips for the unions. I think they're probably going to, you know, stick to this template, um, for quite a while, even if, even if it doesn't serve them well this time around. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot more they could be doing probably to, to try and shift into, um, Previously unorganized sectors, I think there's been a big lag on that here. Maybe even bigger than than in the states, where you've seen a lot of energy around um, unionizing new industries. So we'll have to see how things go.
0: That was Colin Kinneberg, freelance reporter based in Paris and an editor at large at Dissent. You're listening to The Labored, a Dissent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org.
2: And
0: now it is time for everyone's favorite segment Arg! I wish I'd written that. Is work driving you to therapy? Or would it, you know, if you could afford therapy? This week's ARG piece titled appropriately, why work is driving more of us to therapy, advice is for you. This is a second time hit for comrade Josh Gabbert Doyle, and I'm really gonna need him to get out of my head. I discovered that celebrity therapist, Esther Perel had a new podcast on Spotify called How's Work recently and immediately thought, damn, I need to write about that. But Josh has beaten me to it and interviewed Perel to boot editors I still want to write about it. Perel is a relationship therapist, and her previous work centers around couples, but the conceit of Howe's work is that work is, after all, for most of us, a place where we have complicated, difficult relationships, and that we might need help dealing with them, especially as work becomes a bigger and bigger piece of all of our lives, or as Josh writes, quote, more all-consuming, more precarious, and more emotionally fraught, end quote. He notes... Quote, despite her attempt to smooth out the nagging unconscious hangups of workplace psychology, one question remains a constant preoccupation throughout Perel's podcast. Why has workplace mental health become so squalid that we need therapy in the first place? And will therapy really fix it? End quote. Perel's obsession fits in nicely with my own. She tells Josh, quote, I've been looking at how work has become a central hub for something it never was identity, meaning, purpose and belonging. End quote. He continues, quote, Perel was struck by the way that patients who came into her office for couples therapy had come to see romantic relationships in economic terms, as well as describing their professional day-to-day in terms of romantic fixation, end quote. The workers she talks with include pilots, communications workers, and strippers. Perel is well aware that individual therapy won't solve the structural problems with work and the way it has taken over our lives. Josh also asked Kathy Weeks, friend of this podcast and author of the brilliant The Problem With Work, to weigh in, and Weeks noted that rather than adjusting to the status quo, we could use more questioning of the idea that we should love work to begin with. Cough, cough, someone you know is working on a book on just that subject. Josh writes, quote, that's the tension with Perel's new project. How do you address psychological complexity in the workplace without putting the burden on the workers who are struggling through it? Perel is surprisingly candid on this. I think that young people are continuously encouraged to feel good about themselves, to embrace wellness and self-help that's not actually helping them, she says. Downloading the insecurities of modern work onto the workers themselves has radically altered how co-workers interact. No amount of free food or money or purpose is going to compensate if you have a poisonous relationship in the workplace, end quote. Therapy, in other words, won't solve all of our problems, but it might help us think a little bit differently about how to do that.
1: My pick for this episode is by friend of the podcast, Melissa Guerra-Grant in The New Republic. It is called Human Trafficking Courts Are Not a Criminal Justice, quote, Innovation, unquote. The courtroom is designed to be an instrument of justice, but for many sex workers in New York City, their courtroom has come to symbolize everything they fear about the government. The moral policing, the public shaming, the punitive isolation of a hostile legal system. Ironically, the court that they fear is designed to be rehabilitative. The city has, for the past several years, piloted so-called human trafficking intervention courts, which are ostensibly designed to protect sex workers who have been arrested. The courts were presented as a humane alternative to regular criminal court, Aimed at protecting people from human trafficking, because the participants would be sentenced to receive social services, linking them to local nonprofit organizations, and these would then connect them to counseling, healthcare, etc. It was motivated by good intentions, but the reality of this alternative court system often fell short of the ideal vision. Women who were arrested would typically get pushed through an uncomfortable bureaucracy that tethered their access to services to their submission to a stigmatizing, often degrading legal process, whether or not they were really victims of trafficking. The courts often ended up further criminalizing individuals who were treated as victims, but also faced the humiliation of being ignored, condescended to, and stereotyped by the judge. Grant described the mandatory services that people are ordered to undertake as a rite of repentance. Quote, In their first appearance at this court, defendants are typically mandated to a half dozen or more, quote, sessions, unquote, in a social service program, like Garden of Hope, an anti-domestic violence nonprofit that now also serves victims of human trafficking. Through attending these sessions and regularly reporting back to the court and further appearances, defendants are expected to demonstrate their progress and avoid future arrests. The problem is the future arrests seem to happen anyway, and the process becomes increasingly punitive. The New York Times recently reported on the criticisms of the courts, namely that there has been little effective, objective evaluation of the outcomes and no meaningful data collection on how the court has actually performed with respect to its ultimate goal of helping victims of trafficking get out of their situation. Yet Grant points out that these critiques of the court are not new. They began to surface almost immediately after the courts were implemented, and they were often aired by advocacy groups for sex workers that seek full decriminalization of the trade. She cites a 2014 study by the Red Umbrella Project that found that, quote, in Brooklyn in Queens, the people funneled into the courts reflected the racial profiling that police engage in with other arrests. 69% of defendants facing prostitution charges in Brooklyn were black, and in Queens, 58% were East Asian. They also pointed out that the, quote, services, unquote, offered by these intervention courts were inadequate to help even someone who did want to leave sex work, while the arrests re-victimized the same people that the courts said that they were saving, unquote. Yes, there were some cases in which women did say they found help through the courts that they might otherwise have never gotten. But while the courts might provide an alternative to jail, the fact that it relied on arrests created a disturbing cycle in which people were compelled to get services that they did not necessarily want or need or that were insufficient and they were often mandated to go through a series of sessions with social service workers who did not seem to have their best interests at heart and then report to the court to quote show progress. It also fails to take into account that many sex workers aren't waiting to be rescued from their job. For whatever reason they're not going to stop working and no court is going to tell them otherwise even if it does continue to arrest them over and over. And for people who are actually trafficked, the last thing they need is probably a government intervention that fails to respect their own agency and still subjects them to being targeted by police, even if they are brought before an alternative court system. In many cases, the process was a colossal waste of time and resources, both for the so-called victims and for the court system itself. There seemed to be little interrogation of the role of the court in this whole process. If the point is to provide services, why push people through the rigmarole of a Kafkas trial process that might ultimately just leave them increasingly vulnerable to being rearrested? The consequences of this continued criminalization of sex workers were revealed with the death of Yang Song, a Chinese immigrant who was assigned to the court and who later fell to her death as she tried to escape police who were raiding the massage business where she was working. Grant writes, quote, Over the years, I have reported on these courts, defendants, their attorneys, and some service providers themselves have each pointed out the bitter irony that the same people the courts regard as victims of a crime are judged as rehabilitated based not on their own self-directed goals, but on whether police arrest them again in the future, unquote. The photo accompanying this article shows a woman holding a sign proclaiming, sex work is a regular-ass job, period, unquote. That's what many judges and rescue charities perhaps fail to understand about this industry. People do sex work for the same reason they do any other type of work. It's how they make a living. It's true that sex workers face extraordinary risks on the job that many other workers don't, including the risk of exploitation and trafficking, and many might want to leave the job. But the Human Trafficking Intervention Courts have institutionalized a sometimes well-intentioned but often willfully ignorant moral crusade and lashed it to an inherently biased and coercive system of policing. The city's zeal for saving sex workers has resulted in untold social costs. And as we see with the example of Yang Sung. Some have paid with their lives.
0: You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.